welcome to the CultureWise Podcast, where God's good news meets the Latter-day Saints with wisdom and grace. Here, we aim to discuss topics relating to how followers of Jesus can more effectively reach Latter-day Saints and their relational networks. For more information about this podcast, check out our pilot episode titled, What Is This Podcast About? My name is Daniel Schugert, and I am joined today by Ross Anderson. In our last episode, we discussed how Mormonism can be viewed as a cultural identity and how that cultural identity is often shaped by conversion experience. That is, Latter-day Saints come to certainty about their beliefs primarily through experience. Latter-day Saints are typically not shy talking about their faith, but when we share our faith with them, it's important to keep in mind that they think about truth more in terms of experiences not just rational arguments. In today's episode, we want to discuss the language of experience. I've been invited many times by Latter-day Saint friends or missionaries to read the Book of Mormon and to pray about it. And if, if I'm sincere in my prayer, then God will confirm to me the truth of those things. This is not just true about the Book of Mormon, but also about Joseph Smith, pray about the LDS Church, pray about what the missionaries are sharing, And their expectation is that God will confirm to me the truth of the things through experience. They'll expect that I would have some sort of an emotional or spiritual experience to verify the truth. Today, we want to follow up on this as it affects our faith conversations with Latter-day Saints. Ross, how do you understand this topic? Well, the first thing is we want to really understand that LDS people think about truth differently than most you know, traditional or biblical Christians do. And so a lot of times we go into the conversation assuming that they're going to have the same epistemology that we do. Epistemology is the study of knowledge and how do you know what is, what is true and so forth. So assuming that they're going to have the same approach to truth that we do. And so if we're convinced, they should be convinced or we should be able to convince them with the same kind of tools or methods or arguments that convinced us at some point in our lives. Um, but, but they approach truth in a very different way. Um, for them, a conviction about truth is gained, as you mentioned, through this kind of, some kind of experience. And so what we're gonna, what's going to happen a lot of times is that you might be having a conversation with, with an LDS person, and you're making great logical arguments, and it all adds up, right? You're going point A, okay, I agree with point A, Point B, and they agree with point B. Point C, oh, okay, I agree with that. And point D is the obvious logical conclusion of the first three points, and they go, no. And that can be frustrating when we're sharing our faith. Uh, We can lead people down the whole trail of reasoning um, to the obvious conclusion, and they will still not buy it. Now, that's true for a lot of people just because they don't want to, but in the LDS case, it's because their faith is confirmed not by logic so much as by spiritual experience. Now, there are, there are LDS people who do apologetics, and they do mm-hmm. rational arguments and so forth. Those, are in, those function in the LDS world more from the point of view of just giving them confidence that, oh, an expert out there says that this is true, that it's okay. And so it's like, oh... So we, in other words, they they have the psychological uh, buffer to say, oh yeah, yeah, we've got answers to your to mm-hmm. your stuff, but that's not really how they make their decisions. Ultimately, the spiritual decision is made 
uh, by seeking God and by asking God to give you this, this testimony, this personal testimony experience. And so that's why if I'm sharing my faith and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm using rational arguments and apologetic arguments, that that's no guarantee, no matter how good my arguments are, that's no guarantee that they're going to go, oh, yeah, that's true. The, oh, yeah, that's true for them has a lot to do with then their sort of spiritual and personal experiences. Yeah, I've really noticed that in particular when I've had some conversations and gone point A, point B, point C, and, and so on, or, or maybe I've just asked a question that was something a friend had never considered. They'd never thought about it. And often they'll fall back on the language of experience. So they'll go back to their testimony and really not answer the question I asked or address the topic I'm discussing at all, but their response is a reminder of their testimony. Well, they've had this experience, so they know that the church is true. In a way, they're saying, I don't understand all of these issues, but they don't matter because what I, what I can stand on for sure is I've had this experience, and so I know that the LDS church is true. It becomes kind of a defense mechanism in a way, and so it's kind of like the go-to place if uh, the conversation gets uncomfortable or if they don't feel like they have an answer, know how to answer something I brought up, then it's a safe refuge. Um, and it's not, just a, it's not just a dodge or a ploy. It's actually what they believe, mm-hmm. and so it's actually their ultimate sense of why I should think a certain thing or not because I've had this self-validating experience from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've heard this called uh, an exper- experiential epistemology or an emotional or romanticized epistemology. Uh, and, and as you described, an epistemology is just the way of, a way of knowing things. How do we know what is true about the world? But how, how can we understand, how can we consider and evaluate this topic of the experiential epistemology? Yeah, so there, there's a number of factors that this, these, this may come up in a conversation. At some point, it may not. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, and you'll see that as we finish our podcast, that, that we're going to get to practical things about how to share our faith and how to interact with LDS. But, but to evaluate this, I don't want to be thinking, um, oh, now what do I do? They, they had this experience, so are they right? Well, no. We take a look at it, a couple of angles. One thing you have to think about, and that I've brought up to, to LDS people before, is like, well, why is your spiritual experience privileged over anybody else's spiritual experience? Because mm-hmm. people in all kinds of different faith frameworks, Hindu, Christian, whatever, have spiritual experiences that in their, in their mind, they validate their own faith. Well, how, why does yours trump theirs? Well, that's a fair question. Um, and, then, and then you have to also think about the nature of, of emotion, the nature of experience in the human life. So I believe that we're wired by God to have experiences, emotional experiences. I would call them emotional experiences, and they only become, quote, spiritual experiences often because that's the way we interpret them. Right, so an emotional experience, you might have a warm, positive feeling that's very much like the LDS describe their their conversion experience or their testimony experience. You might have that same feeling or that same sense in a lot of different experiences in life. Like when, you know, maybe one of your kids excels, they win the track meet or they sing in the school play or whatever it might be. Or when something that's really meaningful to you happens, like for some it might be when the flag enters the room or, or whatever it might be, you're going to have a warm, 
positive experience. Does that mean that there's something ultimately true at stake? No, probably not. And what where that leads us then is to consider the idea that no experience is self-interpreting. Mm-hmm. In other words, you don't really know what that experience means. We assign meaning to the experience based on how we're taught to assign meaning to it. In other words, we all have a framework. If I have a moving experience, what does it mean? Well, it means what the framework that I bring to the experience tells me that it means. And so for the LDS person, they're taught their whole life long that you're, that you're, you're going to seek this kind of experience. You're going to eventually have this kind of experience. And so when you do have it, then you, you suddenly know what it means. It means what you were told it was going to mean. And so it's sort of, sort of a circular argument. So, for example, I, I remember the story of a, of a young woman who was um, off. She was serving an LDS mission, and she was seeking to have the, this testimony, this, this conversion validation. She was seeking. You know, many of the missionaries, they're young people. They, don't, they haven't had that before, and they're taught to have it. And so they go around, and they're taught to share their testimony, even if they haven't had the experience yet, which is interesting. But um, So she was praying for this. She was taught, she expected it. It was in the first six months of her mission. So she's just far from home and lonely. And, and at Christmas time, she got a gift package from her family, her favorite cookies. And, and it reminded her of home and Christmas. She wished she was at home. And she had a, this warm, positive feeling in response to what, what her parents had sent her. And so she assumed that that meant, oh, the Holy Spirit has told me the Mormon Church is true, and the Book mm-hmm. of Mormon is true. Why? Because she was expecting that, and she had a certain framework that she interpreted the experience in light of. Now, if she, she didn't have that framework, she might have had the same experience, but interpreted it differently, just interpreted it as saying, oh, my parents love me, and I'm far from home, and I'm so glad they thought of me, and, and I love them too, and, and all the rest. So, well, so in evaluating this whole epistemology, Really, we should be talking about what framework a person brings to the experience rather than just the experience itself. Now, that might seem a little complicated philosophically, uh, but let me, and you may or may not ever have that conversation with anybody, but it, it is helpful to reflect on the meaning of experiences in general so that we can maybe have that conversation with somebody. How do you know that experience is from God and not from some other? Um, you know, neutral source. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's here's another example that we can maybe evaluate it with. I, ha- I have a friend who formerly was Latter-day Saint, and uh, when she found out that she was pregnant, she had a dream. And in this dream, uh, there was her child saying, wait, I need to go get my sister. And uh, then my friend found out after that dream that she was actually pregnant with twins. And so for her, in that, in that time, she felt like this dream was God confirming to her that there is a premortal existence and that her, her child needed to wait until the other child could come uh, so that the twins could be born. But what's interesting is then she actually did have twins. She did have twins. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the dream, in a way, actually did come to pass. But how can we understand this experience? Right. So, well... There's a lot of different ways to understand her experience, right? So um, if you were not LDS, 
and you didn't believe in a premortal existence, and you didn't believe that there were souls waiting to be embodied in this world and so forth, you certainly wouldn't jump to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. You might say, oh, maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe there's some internal psychological desire that I wanted to have twins, ultimately. Or maybe it's my body telling me that there's two lives growing in there. Or maybe it's just random. You know, because we have all kinds of dreams that we wake up in the morning and we don't see any kind of meaning at all um, in them, or they're or they're a reflection of uh, of some of the concerns that are on our mind at this point, and so forth. So that that goes back to my point about the experience is not self-interpreting. We're going to interpret it in light of the framework that we have. So people with a different framework than Mormonism would interpret that that dream very differently than than your friend who was. LDS at that time. Mm-hmm. But, but so you say, does the dream prove that there's a pre-existence? Well, no, not really, um, because it could have meant many things. Mm-hmm. So now that we have a, a, a slightly greater understanding of what this experiential language is, this epistemology is, should we appeal to this, this type of epistemology? Of course, every culture has some degree of an epistemology, should we, should we appeal to it when witnessing or discipling people who have that epistemology? Yeah, that's a great question. So how do we cope with this in our LDS conversations and relationships? Because in the past, the approach of uh, traditional Christians has been to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, to say, no, we don't know truth, ultimately truth by experience, so we're going to try to just say, we want nothing to do with that, and we're mm. going to prove that it's not valid, and we're just going to go back to you know, our rational arguments and, Bi- and Bible-based stuff. And we, again, there's a place for those things. Those things aren't, those things aren't um, forbidden or, or, or necessarily bad in a Mormon framework. So there is a scale, if you think about it, there's a scale, because... An LDS person isn't gonna is still gonna use a, a more rational epistemology for a lot of things in life. Um, you know, they might they might actually do their research before they buy a car. Mm-hmm. They might not just pray for what car comes to mind, or or whatever. Um, and yet they're yet they're gonna. They're, I'll give you I'll give you another example that just came to mind. I was talking to somebody on Sunday that told me this story. Um, she was telling me about a family, an LDS family that she works with. She's not LDS, but she's telling me about a family that she works with. Actually, it's a kid uh, that she's a, a teacher in elementary school. The kid comes, and the kid's been eagerly reporting to her every day, week for week after week, we're going to get a puppy. We're going to get a, Our family's going to get a puppy, and she was so excited about it and so forth. And um, Okay, so one day, finally, the, the, the family got the puppy. So the teacher's asking the girl in the LDS family about, oh, how's it going, you know? How do you, how's the puppy? What, what's its name? Blah, blah, blah. And, and the girl says, well, we decided to get rid of the puppy. Hmm. Okay, well, the families do that all the time, right? You get a pet, you get rid of the pet. But what the girl told the teacher was, she said, my family decided that with the puppy in our home, that there was a spirit of darkness hmm. that that invaded our home through this animal, you know. And so they said we needed to we needed to get rid of it. And so I'm going like, well, you know, I guess in in a certain framework you could interpret that. In another framework, you might say, oh, pets are hard, 
<laughs> puppies are difficult and they poop all over the place. You got to train them and, and, um, you know, and it's hard and it's, it, 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 it may be not idealistic the way that kids think it's going to be and so forth. And so, so in my framework, I would have said, dang, you know, dogs are real, puppies are really, really hard and, and we, my kids aren't mature and responsible enough to do it. Uh, we're going to have to send the pet, you know, sell it or whatever. In their framework, it was like, oh, there's a spirit of darkness. So they spiritualized the experience because of that framework. So my point is, my point was, I got distracted there. My point was that in the past, as Christians interact with LDS people, we, we said, no, we don't want to have anything that's bogus. And so we're, we're not even going to go there at all. And, um, you know, as we've talked about already, there are reasons to doubt that epistemology as a as the central approach. But there's two factors at play. One factor is that we want to the LDS people to hear the good news in ways that they can hear, they can actually hear that sound like good news to them. They want to speak to their heart, and so if we can learn to use experiential language to communicate unchanging truths. Then, then we may have an opportunity to connect better with them. And I think that I think there's precedent for that. There's reasonable um, cause for that as Christians, because spiritual experiences are certainly part of the Christian life and the Christian experience as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it's it's not just a dichotomy. Either we're all spiritual experiences or we're all this logical um understanding of truth. And we can see that in, in our own lives. I, I think we can see that in, in our LDS friends' lives. We don't want to just pigeonhole them as, oh, only all about the experience. But my, my LDS neighbors and friends also make logical arguments through things. Um, and so, so it's really not just this dichotomy, one or the other, but how, how can we actually go about couching some of these logical theological truths, but in some language of experience. How can we do that? Right. I think, I think uh, it's a habit to learn. It's a, maybe a new approach to think about, but I think it, it can be learned. Um, so let's, let me give you an example, um, talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. So I, I could have a long conversation or debate with an LDS person about the doctrine of the Trinity. Because Latter-day Saints don't believe that there's only one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate beings, personages, they call them. They believe that they're, that they're one in purpose, but not ontologically one. Um, so they would ultimately, they don't like to use the, the language of three gods. They don't like to be called polytheists. But ultimately, it's not their idea of the nature of God is very different from the biblical idea of the Trinity. And so we can go around back and forth, back and forth on that, and they'll, they'll ask, you know, they'll raise their objections like, oh, who was Jesus praying to in the Garden of Gethsemane then? Was he praying to himself? And, and I can try to show them the biblical basis of why, you know, the, the Trinity is really the only view of God that upholds everything that God's revealed about himself in Scripture. And we can go back and forth and debate and argue and so forth. At the end of the day... Will walk away. Um, I, I I may have spoken to their cognitive uh, faculty, but there's nothing in there that's been appealing to them in any way about mm-hmm. about that doctrine. It isn't. It hadn't spoke to their heart. 
or it hasn't taken into account that they're, they're this romantic epistemology that they operate out of. So, so what I want to do is I want to wrap the, those truths in, into the language of experience. And the way to do that is at some point, maybe at several points along the way in the conversation, I'm going to bear witness to the emotive effect that the doctrine has in my life. That how has it touched me in other ways than just cognitively? And so I'm going to say, look, I, when I think of a, when I think of this infinite God who is so far greater than me that I can't comprehend Him, I can't I can't comprehend what it means to be three in one. I, I know the Bible teaches it. I can lay it out, but I don't know I don't know how it works. And when I think about that, I think, man, God is so far above me. God is so far above my intellect, my understanding. I just want to go, wow. I think about God I just with awe. Mm. I just want to mm-hmm. fall on my knees and go, man, oh man, what an what an amazing, what a awesome, mysterious God. And so my experience of worship, my experience of awe and being blown away by infinitude and to transcendence of God, I want to weave that into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And not just the facts, you know, but also what's what's the response to the facts to say, okay, it isn't just Okay, here's these three points. It's wow, this has impact on my heart, my life, my my experience of God is shaped by that. So that's an example of what I mean by speaking experiential language. Mm-hmm. And here's the here's the thing, um, you know, if anybody's ever had conversations with LDS people, there's times when you you can validate that old adage that says you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Oh, yeah. You know, because a, a lot of our efforts at, at sharing our faith with LDS people in the past have been, have consisted largely of like sticking a hose down their throat and turning on the water full blast. <laughs> uh huh. Right. So they're gagging over the truth. Um, well, you can't make the horse drink, but, but how, how do you, so how do you get the horse to drink? Um, well, somebody once told me, you put salt in their oats. Mm-hmm. So you create thirst. And so I think the, the side effect of learning to speak with experiential, experientially about the biblical truth is that it has the potential to create spiritual thirst. The Holy Spirit can use it for a person to say, oh, I never thought about God like that before. Mm-hmm. I never experienced God like that before. I never had this, when I think of God, I don't have this sense of grandeur and awe, and I'm not on my knees because, you know, this is a whole new way of approaching God. So I'm hoping that not only have I shown them biblical truth, but I'm hoping also that, that I've salted their oats a little bit so, to, to, so they become maybe hungry or desirous for something that's different than the experience that they've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really helpful. Thank you. Well, in order to speak, in experiential language, we have to have actually experienced God in our own lives. And, and maybe you could share stories of the, the time that you first came to faith, or, or maybe you even had a powerful encounter with God today, and you can share that with somebody else. But if you've never shared your testimony with anyone, I invite you to check out our short bonus episode for some simple tips. Again, this is the CultureWise podcast, where God's good news meets the Latter-day Saints with wisdom 